the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Hello, everyone. This is Al Fadi, and I want to welcome you back to a continuation of this fascinating uh, new series. Uh, we called it Putting It All Together, which is basically a historical criticism of Islam, or let's say early Islam, or the origins of Islam, if you wish. And in the last at least couple of episodes, we talked already about what does that mean. And also, last time we talked about what we called the standard Islamic narrative. Today, we're going to continue along these lines, and we are going to, at least uh, as an overview, talk about the book, The Man and the Place. And with me here, of course, just by saying these phrases, uh, you know, we have uh, the man who talks about all of this, and that's our dear brother, Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., thank you so much for always making yourself available for us and uh, for really pouring your heart into uh, this uh, amazing, amazing uh, research, uh, many new discoveries. In fact, uh, we mentioned we're doing this in 2022 because guaranteed, uh, maybe later this year or next year, who knows, maybe something new will come in and we'll keep updating all of that. Why are we concerned about the book, The Man and the Place? Well, I'm concerned about it because I'm the one that coined that phrase. Uh, before, everybody was trying to f find how is it and what is it that we were really questioning. And I decided to come up with the Book of the Man, the Book of the Man. I've been doing this since the 1990s. Then I added the place to it to make it a meme, a real quick meme, so you can see and understand it, visualize it, and also be able to uh, discuss it and debate it. The book, The Man and the Place, because those are the three criteria that really underline. Those are the pillars. That's the foundation of Islam. One book called the Quran, one man called Muhammad, and one place called Mecca. You need those three. You take away one of them, the other two come crashing down. So anytime you take one of those three away, the other two come crashing down, Islam comes crashing down. It's as simple as that. So what is it we want to look for? Well, what we're going to do in this series, we're going to start with Mecca. So what do we want to do? Why Mecca? Well, Mecca is foundational for the other two. If there is no Mecca, that puts that means no either neither the Quran or Muhammad could come from that from that area. They must there must be another Quran we're talking about or another right. Muhammad. And he is as we're going to find out, he is from much further north and it is from much further north. In fact, I'm not even going to say he. I don't really care if there is a Muhammad or not. I would suggest there is no Muhammad. And even the Muhammads we're trying desperately to look for are someone else, because Muhammad's a pretty common name. Did I say name? It's probably better known as a pretty common title. This right. is a title, not a name. We can definitely agree on the fact that it, it is a title for sure. I take the position that there was someone that existed, but maybe his character has been embellished and improved and enhanced over the course of time. But what would we want from Mecca? 
Okay. Mecca, we want a number of things. We want to say, did this place exist prior to the 7th century or even in the 7th century? Why is that crucial? Well, because if there, it didn't exist prior to the 7th century or within the 7th century, then you can throw Muhammad in the, and the Quran out real clearly. And you can pretty much say that the standard Islamic narrative has an enormous gaping hole because the standard Islamic narrative is very clear that everything we know about the early origins of Islam, everything we know about Muhammad, everything we know about the Quran, everything we know about what happened to Muhammad, what he said, where he did, where he went, everything that happened in that uh, between 570 and 632 when he died takes place in this area. It all takes place in the Hijaz. That is where Mecca and Medina are. Or that's at least what allegedly being told to us, that it took place during that time frame, but evidence sources do not. No, no. Well, the standard Islamic narrative is very clear. There, yeah. He didn't live anywhere else. Right. He may have moved and gone on caravans other places, but where he lived, where he received the Quran, where he married, where he had his children, where he started Islam, where the, the Khilafat began, everything about Muhammad, everything he said takes place in that area. That's why we're going to start with that. We have to do that. So I want to find any reference, any evidence. Is there any map? that points it, that gives us there. Uh, is there any artifact? Are there any Qiblas that are facing that place? Is there any reference, uh, to, uh, any book or any reference from the 7th century or earlier that talk about, are there any civilizations, any people that refer to that? Mm-hmm. So we're going to ask that question. We have to ask that question. And then we're going to answer and say, absolutely not. And there's a reason why no one has heard of this place. And it all comes down to one word, Water. It's as simple as that. There's just no water. Now, I'll just let you hang in because you know where I'm going to go with this, and okay. you're going to see why this is so important. The second area we're going to look at is the, the person himself. Now, we're not going to really call Muhammad. We're not going to even talk about Muhammad. I, I'm going to take a bias. I'm biased here. I don't believe there was ever a Muhammad. Of, uh, there, was any, there was someone called Muhammad. There are many people called Muhammad. Listen, my name is Jay. There's lots of Jays living today, and I'm sure there are lots of Jays all over the world. But is there a Jay that's sitting in this studio that I can support historically? Yes, because I'm right here. Can we say the same thing about Muhammad? Is there a man or was there a man named Muhammad who was born in Mecca, who then was there till 622 when he moved to Medina and spent the last 10 years of his life in Medina. Is, that's all I'm asking. And did he receive a book called the Quran? So we're going to look at the origins. I'm going to call it really origins because we want to look at the evidence on the ground. And what, I want, what I'm going to demand is, show me one piece of evidence. That's all I'm asking. Give me a coin. Show me a rock inscription. Show me a building that refers to this man or this place or this, uh, these events that are happening. That's the second one that I want to look at. And that's extremely important, by the way, because uh, remember, I grew up believing in a man by the name of Muhammad, born specifically in 570 at a historical event that took place, you know, the, the elephant, you know, basically, or the year of the elephant and the incident that took place at that time. And then uh, in 610, he was in a cave. He received his revelation. And that continued for at least 13 years in Mecca. And then he migrated to Medina the last 10 years. I mean, these are specific time frames that I grew up believing in. But yet, like you stated correctly, when we look at the sources to back it up, we don't have enough sources to back it up. Not even, I'm not aware of any that can pinpoint these exact dates for us. If you look at the Sirah, for instance, you look at the Hadith collection and you look at the Tafsir and all that kind of stuff, everything 
is later and also troubling uh, to me uh, is that it points north, not south. Okay, so here's what the question I'm going to ask. When I did my debate with Dr. Jamal Badawi back in 1995, and I started giving these 10 historical problems with the origins of Islam, his answer to me at that time was, Mr. Smith, the absence of evidence does not mean that there's evidence of absence. Which mm-hmm. is, of, you've heard this phrase many times, and that's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Just because there's an absence of evidence does not necessarily suggest the evidence of absence. I couldn't respond to that at that time in 1995. We're now in 2022. Now I can. And what we're going to show when we get through this period is we're going to show there's a huge amount of evidence. And we're going to show you what the evidence is. But what we're looking for, we're looking for five things. We're looking for a book called the Quran. We're looking for a man named Muhammad. We're looking for people called Muslims. We're looking for a religion called Islam. And we're looking for a city called Mecca. Those are the five things I want to ask. And I want to see if they exist, if there's any evidence for those five things. If there's no evidence for those five things, because those are the five things that make up Islam or the origins of Islam, then I was going to turn that on its head, that whole phrase on its head, and says, now you Muslims... You now have no evidence. So the, av- uh, the absence of evidence, in your case, does it suggest the evidence of absence? I would suggest that you've got this problem, no longer me. I've got the evidence. You no longer have the evidence. Until you can show me evidence for any of these five things in the 7th century, there is no debate. Because why debate? Because I'm not, I'm fed up and I'm, you're wasting my time to always be pointing to the 9th and 10th and 11th century. Who cares dilly swat about the 9th, 10th, 11th century? I want to talk about the 7th century. Now, do you see how easy that makes it? But also, that is what we demand of any historical claim. We've been demanded of that in Christianity. We had to prove that there was a person named Jesus Christ living in the first century, that he did die on the cross. Whether he rose again, we didn't have to prove that, but that has been proven. That's the beauty of it. We had to prove that the New Testament, the, the record that we have, uh, the, the, the New Testament itself had to have been written at least by the second uh, by the first century, written down by the first century, though we don't have any of the manuscripts from that earliest period. So that's why we then had to, by doing that, since the last 200 years, we have been doing that. And that's why, since we've done it, I'm going to demand it of Islam. I will demand that of any religion that makes historical claims. In the last two minutes of, of this, uh, well, let's talk about the last piece, which is what would you want from the Quran, the book? This is the biggest one, and that's why I'm leaving it to last. The biggest one is the one that worked, that really is going to be the crowning, the, the crowning hole, the biggest hole of all of them. The biggest hole is the book itself, this book, Quran right here. This should be easy to find in the 7th century. There should be a litany of manuscripts because the Muslim traditions do say it. The standard Islamic narrative is very clear that this book was compiled and written down in its final form in 652 by Uthman. Zaidi bin Thabit, who was given commission to do that, sent to five different cities, five different cities which still exist today, all of which have been controlled by Islam for the last 1,400 years. There should be no problem finding those five manuscripts. Where are they? Not only that, is there any Quran that all those manuscripts that parallel this? More than that. What do we know now about how the Quran was put together? And at the very end of all our discussions, I'm going to ask and put, put to you, where did this Quran come from? Not only that, but uh, even if 
we're talking about manuscripts to match this, but do we even have a complete Quran from the 7th century that matches this? That's a whole different story, of course, based on what we know. And so at far. the very end, I want to show you, we now pretty well know where the Quran came from. And guess who it's all about. But that's for the end. Which we did also another series about this, but I will not really spoil uh, that for uh, yet. What are we going to talk about next time? We're now going to introduce and look at the source problem. We're going to actually ask, and I'm going to show you some graphs. We've seen it before. We're going to unpack and say, why are these graphs important? Look at the timelines. We need to put the whole problem with the source difficulties in a timeline. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully everyone uh, is enjoying this, and uh, we look forward to having you next time. Until then, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAinternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, this is Al-Fadi, and I want to welcome you back to a continuation uh, of this uh, series that uh, we are basically going through, myself and Dr. J, by putting all the material together for you to help you now glean uh, uh, resources and tools that will be helpful to you when it comes to the uh, Islamic, uh, basically, history and the critique of that, the origins of Islam, uh, the critique of the place, uh, the critique of the man, the critique of the book. And uh, as a result of this, of course, we're trying to do it in a way that uh, not only unpacks all of that material that has been covered multiple times already uh, with, with great uh, in-depth and expansion, uh, either on Fonder Films or at least on my own channel. But today we want to try to simplify it to where we're making it shorter videos and with really succinct focus on these topics as well. Today we're going to talk about the problem with the sources and uh, why is that crucial when it comes to the standard Islamic narrative. Again, with me here in studios as uh, before is our dear brother, Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., welcome back. Thank you. Thanks what are the me. problems with the sources that you want us to unpack here? Well, the first problem is the dates. Now, Al-Fadi, you're told that Islam began at this place by this man over this period with right. these people. And you're told this since you're knee-high to a grasshopper. Absolutely. And as you heard this there in Saudi Arabia where you grew up, you assumed that everything you were just listening to was sacrosanct, was true, right? That's correct, and it's supported by the evidence that presented to us, the tarikh, and, you know, the hadith, you know, the tafsir, you know, uh, you name it. Okay, and what, when you heard this as a boy growing up, uh, did you ever question where this material was coming from? Not at all. I mean, in my case, at least, and I can speak for many, not at all. Did your teachers ever tell you where it's coming from? Uh, no, it's just Islamic sources, and you don't question that. Oh, they did. They did tell you. They tell you, tell I mean, you. the source, at least, yes. But uh, What were the question? sources they gave you? Well, of course, you have the Sira. Okay, and by who? Uh, Ibn Hisham, of course, because okay. that's the most popular one. We know about Ibn Ishaq, but Ibn Hisham basically... Actually, they would never said Ibn Hisham. They would have said Ibn Ishaq. 
That is true. But we knew that it was Ibn Hisham uh, because of the connection, at least the perceived connection between Ibn Hisham and Ibn Ishaq. Then you have the tafsir, of course. You have the hadith, Bukhari, Muslim, of course, mentioned all So you the knew these names. These are household yeah, names. Absolutely. Okay. And so you've grown up with these names. Yeah, like every, like every Muslim. Even till this day, by the way, these names are still household names. Absolutely. Now, for those of you who are listening, especially if you're a Westerner, you haven't heard these names before. These are probably new for you. But they're not new for uh, Al-Fadi. And that's why I wanted to make sure Al-Fadi, I'm just going to be throwing things at you as we go on. So these people, Ibn Hisham, Ibn Ishaq, Al-Buhari, Sahib Muslim, I mean, they, they just drip out. Al-Tabari, these are names that you've grown up with. These are people that you have always heard. When did you think they lived? Well, I mean, of course, uh, let's take Ibn Abbas, for instance, as the father of tafsir or mm-hmm. commentary. I mean, Ibn Abbas is a cousin of Muhammad. So he would be living at the time of Muhammad. Exactly. Okay. And, and yeah. where is his book? Uh, well, <laughs> that's the question. You know, you know about his book. From uh, whom? But, uh, but you do not know. Where, where do you is know him? about Ibn Abbas? Where do you get all the material about Ibn Abbas? There's no book that he wrote. I mean, just tafsir, basically. And who is the person that wrote the tafsir? Al-Tabri. So we know about Ibn Abbas because of Al-Tabari. It's Al-Tabari Al-Tabari that makes references to him all the time. Yeah. All the time. And so that's why we know about this man. And we know about Fatima, the daughter. We know about Aisha, the wife. I'm sorry, the, the wives. Uh, we know about all these stories about Muhammad. We know about the, the Ansar who were there in Medina. All these stories surrounding Muhammad's life, about the Medina going back and forth, the Hijrah. All these stories you knew about. And you always assumed that they were being written by people who were there. You have no reason to question it. And you never raised your hand in class and say, well, hold on a minute. Oh, trust me, if I did that, uh, I think I would have suffered a great deal of persecution, not just by the teacher, but even my, by my parents, because they will be told that your son is questioning Islam. Okay, okay, that's Saudi Arabia. That's the environment. But see, in the West, where I come from, these haven't been questioned either, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to me. There's no persecution. No one would throw you out of class or, to, or call your parents in if you were to ask a simple question at any university or any school where you're being taught this. Hold on a minute. Where did these people get this material from? Now, that's interesting to me. Why? Because I noticed the same thing in the West also. It is not questioned. It's never questioned because there are no red lines in the West. We don't have censorship of, in fact, we engender and we engage people to question. That's what you do when you go to school. You go to school to learn, but you're also there to question the teacher. If you don't question the teacher, if you have doubts, then what kind of education is that? So we have a whole different concept of education here in the West than I would say you probably had in Saudi Arabia. So I'm even question. I'm even wondering why this has never been questioned in my upbringing, because when I was told this, listen, I was told this when I was living in India, uh, that uh, Ibn Hisham and Al-Ibn Ishaq and Al-Buhari, I knew these names. I grew up amongst Muslims all my life. I had them as classmates. I had them as roommates. So where I grew up in northern India, which has around 200 million Muslims, some of the most radical Muslims come from where I grew up, up in the north part of India. Uttar Pradesh is what it's called. I Even they... We at least discuss these kind of things, but I don't remember ever myself asking the very, probably the most important question, where do you get all this material from? 
And I remember you telling us a story that when you were at least doing your MA, uh, that when the professor was questioning things like this, the Muslim students left the class. Well, this was in London. This is much later. This is when I was actually, I had already got my master's degree. I had two master's degree. I had come to London. I was there in 1994. Look at the dates. We're talking, what, 20, 25, 26, 27 years ago. I was there in class with Dr. Gerald Hotting. And I remember sitting in class on the origins of Islam, this very subject that we're doing. So that was 27 years ago. Dr. Gerald Hotting was part of the revisionist school, and he uh, was introducing some brand new material. There were maybe about 50 students in the class. And he started saying simple things like, we can't find any, uh, any mosque that has directed its Qibla towards Mecca. And I raised my hand immediately, and I said, hold on a minute. Well, wait, wait a minute. No early Qibla is facing Mecca? That's hugely significant. Why is that? And he would not answer. And then he said something like, the Dome of the Rock. You notice the Dome of the Rock doesn't have a Qibla. I said, the third holiest shrine in Islam doesn't have a Qibla. And I raised my hand. And as he was saying this, he was looking at the other students because the other students, about half the class, was made up of Muslim students because this is on the origins of Islam. They were going to look and think. They were, thought they were going to hear what they've always been told. And they wanted to learn all this, all this material from Ibn Hisham and Al-Buhari and Sahim. They were coming to hear that. And yet they were hearing some questions about the origins of Islam, some historical questions. And one after another, in the, in the first two weeks of the course, one after another of these Muslim students got up, took his books, went to the door, said something really demeaning about the professor, Hotting, slammed the door and left and refused to take the class. And within two weeks, half his class had gone, all of the Muslim students. And I looked around as each one of them were leaving, and I said, Goodness sakes, look how they're reacting. This is amazing. Yeah. I said, this, I never heard this material before. See, I, I had a master's degree in Islam from Fuller Seminary there in California. I had, uh, you know, uh, I spent my whole life study, learning about Islam. And uh, I, I was there studying under Dr. Dudley Woodbury, who is one of the foremost authorities on Islam in the Western world. And he never told me this stuff. He never told me anything about the historical critical uh, uh, material. I never heard this about the Qiblas or I never heard this about the sources, about the sources especially. That was the most damaging material. And here are all these Muslim students leaving the class. And I said, this is important Source material is important because they were hearing for the first time that everything they had believed, everything they knew about Muhammad, everything they knew about what he did, everything they knew about what he said was not from the 7th century. So when was it from? Right. See, and the, you had never questioned this, had you? Not at all, not at all. And like I, like I said, right now I'm fascinated by this uh, simply because this is the foundation that Islam stands on. And what we're doing, brother, is we're taking a sledgehammer and we are destroying it. And by the time you finish destroying it, my question to my Muslim friends, what are you standing on? What are you standing on? If your very foundation is shaky and you cannot find a single evidence to back up the dates of this early start of this religion, the standard Islamic narrative, allegedly. This is why this is fascinating to me. Well, it, to me, this is, you, we have to start with the sources. We have to start with this problem because everything is dependent on these people who wrote about this man doing these things in that place. The book of the man in the place, these people who are the witnesses of these events should have been eyewitnesses. 
I'm guessing they are eyewitnesses. You have always assumed that these were eyewitnesses. We've demanded this of Christianity, haven't we? We've demanded that Matthew and at least John, who were eyewitnesses to everything they wrote, Luke and Mark got it from the other eyewitnesses. They were actually people who lived there and heard it or saw what they were writing. So that we have passed that test of source criticism with Christianity. Now we're going to ask the same question of Islam. And that's what we're going to do with starting with the next episode. So what are we going to show next time uh, for people to uh, basically um, begin to learn why the sources are extremely important? I'm going to do what Muslims have not done and what you have never heard and what I hadn't heard. I'm going to put it on a timeline. Wow. I'm going to show you on the time. I'm going to show a few timelines. I'm going to show you exactly where the problem is. Thank you. Of course, uh, uh, to those of you who are watching this, uh, most likely this part alone, uh, which is the problem with the sources, might be multi-parts, by the way. So we're going to call this one part one. We'll see uh, uh, basically how many parts it will require for us to unpack. But we're taking our sweet time because we want to make sure we do not rush into just uh, lumping everything together because we want you to have these resources in a way uh, that is at least chronological from our perspective uh, that will be helpful to you hopefully in a logical manner but you can use it however you want you can download it uh, you can uh, share it with others and uh, uh, you know basically take whatever portions you feel like are appropriate for your conversations that you're having with muslims if you're a muslim watching this we really welcome your comments if you have a single source that can contradict anything we're saying, please send it our way. We're waiting for that 7th century source to back up any of the standard Islamic narrative. So far, I haven't seen any. And until next time, have a blessed day. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.